Let's look together at the book of Hebrews again, chapter 13. Hebrews 13, and we're looking at verses 12 through 14 this morning, but I want to begin reading in verse 7, just so we can get some context to the passage we're looking at. So Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as an offering for sin, are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 through 24, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Have you ever thought to yourself about why that is? Why is it so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Of heaven. Well, it's because man's sinful heart can see in riches an illusion of security and comfort and hope in this present world to the point where it's hard to see why they need a Savior. And this is not just true of a rich man, but of anyone who is experiencing much physical comfort, ease, and pleasure in this world. We can so easily deceive ourselves into thinking that our future is secure and there's no need to be saved from anything. This world is pretty good. I don't really have a need for a better world. I don't really need a savior. That's why it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And in one sense, this was true of the Apostle Paul. I don't know that he was a rich man, but he he had it all. We read that in part of his testimony In Philippians chapter 3 this morning, he rattled it off for us in verses 4 through 6. By the Pharisees' standards, Paul had already punched his ticket to heaven. You could look at his outward life and find nothing wrong with him. So carefully was he following the Mosaic law, at least externally. And he thought that he was being zealous for God. Paul thought he was a warrior on God's side. He was persecuting Christians, seeing them as heretics and false teachers who needed to be purged from the nation of Israel. After all, that's what the law told the people to do to anyone who taught different than what God had revealed himself to be. And Paul thought that that's what Christians were. He was comfortable in his religiosity. But then one day, we read about in the book of Acts, on his way to the city 
of Damascus in order to arrest Christians and to drag them back to Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus Christ encountered Paul. And when Jesus appeared to Paul, Jesus destroyed Paul's entire worldview. Jesus showed Paul that by persecuting Christians, he was actually persecuting the Lord of glory himself. Jesus showed Paul that he was actually spiritually bankrupt, that all the things he thought he had going for him were actually negatives. They were actually uh, things dragging him to hell. He had no grounds for any hope apart from Christ. In a moment, the Lord Jesus revealed that to Paul. And once that happened, Paul abandoned his entire way of life. Everything he had spent his entire life working for, all of the credit before God he thought he was building up, he took all of that and he threw it in the trash for the sake of following Jesus Christ. And someone who is comfortable in this world, they need to have that happen to them. They need to have their worldly hope destroyed before they will turn to Jesus to find true hope. And this letter that the preacher was writing to these Hebrew believers in large measure is a letter that is seeking to destroy any hope the readers might be placing somewhere other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And in these readers' cases, the writer has been reminding them of the hopelessness of leaving Jesus to go back to the law of Moses. He's taking whatever hope they have in the law of Moses and he's just absolutely setting it on fire. He's destroying it. As followers of Christ, these believers have most likely been completely ostracized from the Jewish community. They've lost their entire way of life. And now that Rome is getting set to turn up the heat of persecution on them, they are starting to long for that comfortable life that they left behind. They're starting to forget why they'd begun to follow Jesus in the first place. And so the preacher is reminding them that what they have lost in, in this world has been infinitely more than compensated for in the person of the Lord Jesus. That's what he said in verse 10, saying, Listen, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. We get to participate in something that the, the priests under the old covenant could not even begin to taste. We have it in Christ. And then he went on to speak of one of the sacrifices in particular that the Levitical priests were tasked tasked with carrying out year by year, the, the Day of Atonement sacrifice. The preacher begins to direct our attention to that sacrifice and holding closely together with it the sacrifice of Christ that that Day of Atonement sacrifice was pointing to. And we've looked at the Day of Atonement before as we've gone through this letter. Just to remind us, it was a sacrifice that God directed Israel to observe just once a year. And this one day of the year was the only time that the high priest was ever allowed to enter into the most holy place in the tabernacle. And in this sacrifice, he would take a bull and he would sacrifice the bull to pay for his own personal sins. And then he would take two goats. And one of those goats he would sacrifice to atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. And then he would take that other goat 
and he would lay his hands upon that goat and he would confess the sins of the people over that goat, symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto that goat. And then he would send that goat outside of the camp into the wilderness to carry the people's sins away. And he would take the blood of those animals, of the bull and of one of the goats, and he would carry that blood into the most holy place. And then he would take the bodies of those animals that had been sacrificed, and he would have them burned outside of the camp. And unlike with other sacrifices, where they could eat of those sacrifices, the priests could not eat of any of the meat that was offered in this sacrifice. It's because it was all burned up outside the camp. And this sacrifice, you can read all about in Leviticus 16. It was done in order to sanctify the people, to cleanse the people so that God could dwell among them. So when we come to verse 12, the preacher is showing us, he's beginning to compare to us, he's beginning to compare what Jesus did in his sacrifice with what the high priest did under the old covenant in the Day of Atonement sacrifice. And it's here in verse 12 that the preacher shows us the first point in our outline that our hope is in Jesus. It's not in the Old Covenant. Our hope is in Jesus. Verse 12, he says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Again, according to verse 11, the old covenant high priest offered the bodies of animals, bulls, goats. But according to verse 12, what did Jesus offer? He offered his own blood, his own life, his own body. And we're reminded from the rest of the letter that the old covenant high priests were sinners. They could not offer themselves as a sacrifice for the people because they themselves needed a sacrifice to deal with their own sins. But compare Jesus to them. Jesus is sinless. Jesus is a perfectly righteous man. And as God, Jesus' life has infinite value. And on the cross, Jesus gave his righteous life for the lives of his sinful people in order to sanctify them, to cleanse them, to make them fit to dwell forever with the holy God. That's what Jesus did. And in verse 12, how did Jesus give his own blood for his people? What did he specifically do to shed his blood for his people? The end of verse 12 says, he suffered outside the gate. He suffered outside the gate. As the bodies of those sacrificial animals were burned outside the camp, so Jesus went outside the camp. He went outside the gates of Jerusalem to sacrifice himself. And this is actually a point that the Apostle John, in his gospel, uh, almost in passing, brings out. John chapter 19, speaking of the crucifixion of Christ and where that took place. John chapter 19. In verse 17, John tells us, They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, 
which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And then in, in verse 20, uh, it says that therefore many of the Jews read this inscription, the inscription that was posted above his cross. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It wasn't in the city, it was near the city. Jesus went outside the gates of Jerusalem to offer himself. And it's here in verse 12 when the preacher mentions this suffering outside the gate. It's here that the preacher begins to bring in the idea not only of Jesus being a sacrifice, but also the idea of Jesus being rejected by his people. Now that might not be readily apparent to you, but I want you to think through it with me. In the Old Testament, do you remember what would happen to someone in the Israelite community if they became unclean? What did God command of them? They were to go outside the camp so that they didn't make anyone else unclean because a holy God cannot dwell among an unclean people. Now, do you remember what would happen to someone who sinned willfully and rebelliously so that there was no sacrifice available to him? There was no sacrifice that they could make to atone for the sin, the willful, rebellious, blasphemous sin that they committed. What did God command to be done to that person? He was to be cut off from his people. Actually, God commanded that the people execute the man and that they bring his body outside of the camp. That's what God commanded his people to do to that blasphemer. You see this uh, if you go to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, if you remember that God appointed Aaron to be the high priest and appointed Aaron's sons to help him in uh, the priestly duties. They were also priests. And Aaron's two oldest boys, Nadab and Abihu, they were men, they, they became priests. And if you'll remember, they actually at one point failed to obey God's instructions on how they were supposed to burn some incense. They, as the Bible says, burned strange fire. They did something that God had not authorized them to do in a way that he told them that they were not to do it. And what did God do? He poured out his fiery wrath and burned up these men. And when we come to verse 4, we see Moses um, commanding certain relatives of Nadab and Abihu to do something with their bodies. Verse 4, Moses called also to Mishael and to Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. He wanted to take their bodies outside the camp. Now I want you to flip over to chapter 24 of Leviticus. Leviticus 24, and I want to read starting in verse 10. Moses is telling us of a particular case that happened. Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the sons of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name, the name of God, and cursed. 
So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who is cursed outside the camp, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, then let all the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. In other words, there's no sacrifice that can be made to cover that sin. Verse 16, Moreover, the one, who has bla- the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Verse 23, Then Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, and they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp and stoned him with stones. Thus the sons of Israel did, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So you see how God would express his wrath against the blasphemer, against the rebellious sinner. God expressed his wrath by ordering his people to reject that individual. And that is what is done to Jesus. Jesus was the righteous one, the irony of ironies, and his people, they were the blasphemers. They were the rebels. They were the sinners who should have been cut off. They were the unclean ones. But Jesus himself was willingly treated as a rebel sinner. And his people had him taken outside of the city, and they executed him by the hands of the Romans. Jesus suffered the ultimate rejection. He suffered the wrath of God by having God's people take him out and execute him. And he did this in order to sanctify his people, to reconcile them to God. So we see that Jesus alone has done what was required to save and sanctify you. You know, those countless bulls and goats, that sacrifice that was done year after year after year, it always had to be repeated because it never actually did the trick. It was only until Jesus came and he offered his once-for-all sacrifice that our sins were atoned for. Jesus is what the Day of Atonement sacrifice was pointing to. Jesus is what the Day of Atonement sacrifice was a copy and a shadow of. So we are not to put our hope in shadows and copies. We are instead to put our hope in Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement sacrifice. Our hope is in Jesus, nowhere else. Nowhere else. Not in those varied and strange teachings that the preacher is warning us to not be carried away by. Only in Jesus. That brings us to our second point that we see in verse 13. And it's this, our hope is outside of the camp. So our hope is in Jesus, but also our hope is outside the camp. Not within the camp, it's outside the camp. Verse 13. So, seeing in verse 12 that that's what Jesus has done. So, verse 13, let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. As I mentioned before, the priests, they were entitled to eat of the meat that was offered in various sacrifices. 
but they were not allowed to eat of the meat that came from the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. Because again, what happened to those bodies? They were burned outside the camp. But remember verse 10. He says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. So whereas the priests, they could not partake of the Day of Atonement sacrifice, we as Christians are able to partake of Jesus' sacrifice, which is the fulfillment of what the Day of Atonement pointed toward. So the priests, they couldn't even eat of the copy, but we as believers, we get to eat of the actual fulfillment of what that pointed ahead to. Now, how do we partake of Jesus' sacrifice? How do we feast on his sacrifice? It's by faith. And we see in Scripture, Jesus plainly tells us, invites us to come and to partake of his sacrifice. I didn't read it last time, but I want to read it this time, John chapter 6. I want you to see where Jesus invites us to come and eat of his sacrifice. This great privilege has been opened up to us. John chapter 6, starting in verse 51. Remember, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 and they come looking for him because they want him to make more food for them. And Jesus is trying to show them, I am the food. Don't settle for physical food. You need to pursue me. Verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus has done everything necessary to reconcile us to God by his once-for-all sacrifice. And he's inviting us to come and to feast upon what he has done. Therefore, the preacher says in verse 13, because that's what Jesus has done, in light of that fact, these Hebrew believers that he's writing to should go out to Jesus outside the camp to partake of his sacrifice. But here's the thing. To go out to Jesus, to go and partake of his sacrifice through faith, it involves personal rejection. As Jesus was rejected, believers must be willing to be rejected in order to go and partake of the sacrifice that Jesus offered up on the cross. Remember verse 10, he says, we have an altar to eat from. The cross is the
the altar that we approach, upon which our great high priest offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And again, where is the cross? 2,000 years ago, where was the cross, that altar located? Outside the gate, outside the camp, outside the society of the people. The cross was where all the societal rejects are. And we can only partake of Jesus' sacrifice. We can only go to the cross if we're willing to go outside the camp to be rejected by our own people as Jesus was rejected by his. And it's not some kind of works righteousness. It's not, oh, i got to get people to hate me and only then I can be saved. No, that's not what I'm saying. We have to be willing to be rejected because that is the natural consequence of what happens when we come to Christ. If we are unwilling to be rejected, we will be unwilling to come to Jesus because everyone who comes to Jesus will experience to some degree the rejection that he, re- he felt. When we identify ourselves with Christ by faith, there will be times when we find people ignoring us, excluding us, belittling us, insulting us, and persecuting us because that is what they did to Jesus. If they did it to him, they'll do it to his people. So following Jesus will naturally expose you to that kind of treatment. That is what it means to bear Jesus' reproach. It is to be willing to be treated the way he was treated. Now, if those are the consequences of following Christ, who is going to sign up for that? The ones who are going to sign up for that are only the ones who realize the infinite value of Jesus and his sacrifice. The only ones who are going to sign up for that are those for whom Jesus is the greatest treasure in the entire universe. Someone who's worth losing everything for, selling everything for. And that's what Paul found. That's why he gave up his entire way of life. Now, I want to fast forward to our time and our day and our culture. Can you think of any areas where our society would be quite upset with you for standing where Jesus stands. Because it's more and more getting to the point where to be a Bible-believing Christian in our society is to stick out like a sore thumb. Our society is wanting to find out where everybody stands. They want you to confess where are your loyalties And you better confess that you stand with the society or else they were going to kick you out of the camp. They're going to expel you. You're not going to belong. They're going to cancel you. If you dare to stand where Jesus stands, that will happen. If you dare to say that marriage should only be between a biological man and a biological woman, you are out. If you dare to say that God made mankind male and female and he alone irreversibly decided what your gender was the moment you were conceived, you are out. If you dare to say that every life matters to God, whether your skin is black 
or white or anything in between, and that it's wrong to show partiality to anyone, regardless of what happened to their ancestors, you are out. If you dare to say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, and there is no hope for salvation to be found in anyone else, you are out. So the question is, are you and I willing to go outside the camp and to stand where Jesus stands? Are we willing to bear his reproach? Now, I'm not talking about being mean to people and beating them over the head with our opinions and shouting victory once we've succeeded in cowing them into silence. No, I'm talking about winsomely, lovingly, respectfully, gently, and boldly declaring the truth of the gospel to people because we desire for them to be saved, not because I'm trying to win this argument so I can feel good. Because that's also what it looks like to stand with Jesus, bearing his reproach, not rushing to pridefully and angrily assert ourselves and defend ourselves every time someone disagrees with us. Let us go outside the camp to stand with Jesus, willing to be suffered for his sake and to love those who are reviling us. So we've seen that our hope is in Jesus. And because our hope is in Jesus, therefore our hope lies outside the camp, not in our society, outside our society's approval. And that brings us to our third point that we find in verse 14, that our hope is not in this world. Verse 14, he says, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Now, going outside the camp to Jesus, bearing his reproach, that was something that these Hebrew believers had done before. We saw it in chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, about how they stood with Christ and they stood with Christ's people and they suffered for it. They were willing to do this before. They were boldly going outside their society and standing with Jesus and they were rejoicing even in the midst of the difficult consequences. But now they are beginning to shrink back from faithfully standing with Christ. And they are not alone. Because today this is one of the most common struggles for believers, especially for us who live in America, where we live quite comfortably. And our eyes are often blinded to the fact that We need salvation. We need the kingdom that the Lord is bringing. Now, we want to be faithful to Christ as believers. We want and we do believe that knowing Jesus is worth losing everything for. But too often, when the opportunity to stand with Jesus presents itself, we waver. Our hands and our knees shake. Our voices quiver. We look at the ground and we shuffle our feet as we helplessly watch the opportunity just pass by without grabbing a hold of it and making the most of it. And then we kick ourselves after the fact, and we rebuke ourselves, and we say, what's wrong with me? Jesus bore the wrath of God for me. Can I not just take a chance and stand with him? Is Jesus not worth that to me? At least that's what I remember from all the missed opportunities 
that I have piled up over the years. But but thank God for the forgiveness that we have in Christ, that his grace overwhelms our sin, and he's always there to forgive us and to help us follow him truly. But it still leaves the question, where does this sinful cowardice come from that we so often find in our hearts? Well, the, the simple answer is it comes from our own sinful hearts, just as I said. But that's not really what I'm asking. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul wrote this to his son in the faith. He said, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or a spirit of cowardice, but of power and love and discipline or self-control. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. That verse tells you that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you already have everything you need to, stay, to take a stand for Jesus. You have everything you need. You don't need to wait around for God to zap you with some kind of spiritual resources that he has not given you yet. You have the Holy Spirit of Almighty God dwelling inside of you. All the power, all the love, all the self-control is right there. It's just waiting for you and I to draw upon it and to step out in faith and believe that Jesus is actually going to do what he promised when he gave us the Great Commission. He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's just waiting for us to just believe him enough to step out and stand with him. And he'll be right there. It's all there. God has supplied it all to us. So the question really is this. If, if that verse is true, 2 Timothy 1, 7, then what in the world is stopping me from living by that Spirit of God that he has given me in Christ? What's stopping me? And the answer has everything to do with verse 14. When he says, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Verse 14 is the grounds for living out verse 13. We're not going to go outside the camp and to stand with Jesus if we are not seeking the city which is to come. This is the exact same dynamic that we see being lived out in the life of Moses. Remember chapter 11? We read about Moses. Verse 24, when he says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was Pharaoh's adopted, uh, Pharaoh's daughter's adopted son. Talk about comfort. Talk about rich. Talk about having the pleasures of this world. But what did he do? Verse 25, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, the mistreatment of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Now how in the world did he make that trade? What brought him to the point of thinking that, you know what, all of this wealth and pleasure and ease that I have in Egypt, I think it's worth 
more to me if I go and suffer with Christ and I go and suffer with his people? What led him to that conclusion? The end of verse 16, or end of verse 26, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, how? As seeing him who is unseen. And we also saw this being lived out in the lives of the Hebrew believers. Back in chapter 10, verse 34, when he said to them, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. How in the world were they able to do that? Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. That's how they were able to just give it all up because they recognized what they had in Christ. So we learn from all these verses that the secret, or at least one of the secrets of being able to go outside the camp and stand with Jesus bearing his reproach is seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Paul says the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 4, when he says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And ultimately, again, as always, Jesus is our greatest example of this. That's why we are to fix our eyes on him, as it says in Hebrews 12, verse 2. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Now, how in the world was Jesus able to stand where he stood and to endure what he suffered? Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was seeking his Father. He was seeking his kingdom, and that enabled him to fearlessly go through what he went through, to go outside the camp. When we get too caught up in what we have in this world, we will fail to stand with Jesus every single time. We tend to forget that earthly comforts, earthly possessions, and the acceptance or the approval of our society is all passing away, and it's not worth anything because it has no place in the world to come. It's the world to come that will never pass away, not this world. So why are we living, holding on so tightly to this world? It's going to all go away anyways. I want you to picture yourself as a homeless person living just off the side of the road and you've got no place to call home other than a piece of tarp that you've strung up between some trees to keep the rain off your head and the wind off your back. Now I want you to imagine that a relative of yours has just passed away and he was filthy rich and it turns out that this person has left his entire estate including his giant mansion, to you of all people, you homeless person living off the side of the road. And you're going to be able to move in tomorrow 
You will become a multimillionaire overnight. Now imagine that as evening falls, one of your relative's enemies comes and tracks you down, and he's got a flaming torch in his hand, and he threatens to burn down your straggly tarp tent unless you disown your, uh, your relative and you forfeit your inheritance. Now, are you going to cower in fear? And are you going to say, please, don't burn my tarp down. I'll do whatever you want, just don't burn down my tarp. No, you could care less about what happens to your tarp because you know that tomorrow night you'll be sleeping soundly in the master bedroom of your mansion. You're not about to disown the one who's given you everything in order to save what is already in tatters. This is not an original thought, because Paul says this very thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as we begin to close our time here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 Remember, this is the man who woke up to the fact that he had no hope in this world and he left all for the sake of Christ. Other than Jesus, you can't think of a man more brave than Paul, more ready, more willing to go outside the camp and to stand with Jesus. How, how did Paul get that kind of attitude? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent speaking of his body. If the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, and as much as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So where does this courage come from to go and to stand with Jesus outside the camp? It's not by you, you know, cinching up your pants, tightening your belt and say, okay, I'm going to do it this time. It's not by trying to build up some kind of moral fortitude within your own self. This courage comes from recognizing truly, focusing on, believing that all of this is passing away. Jesus is everything to me. He is bringing me to his kingdom. What do I care if I lose what I've got here? 
I'm not going to be able to hang on to it anyway. And what Christ is giving to me far outweighs any kind of suffering that I will have to endure in losing what I have here. That's where the courage comes from. It comes from believing the truth. Verse 9, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Because he's who it's all about. He's who we're going to spend eternity living for, serving. For we must all appear before the judgment seat, not of my neighbor, not of that guy down the road who looks at me funny when I come to church. Who are we going to stand before? The judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Our king is coming, and by his own shed blood, he's purchased for us a place in his kingdom. And the more we focus on that, the more we believe that, the more we live in the light of that, we will hold less and less tightly to the things of this world. The more you're concerned about pleasing Christ, the less concerned you'll be about pleasing man. The more you fear God, the less you'll fear man. The more you love Christ, the less you will love the opinion of man. So you and I, we need to cultivate this kind of Christ-pleasing and kingdom-seeking attitude if we want to become people who will persevere in boldly standing with Jesus. How do we get this attitude? We, We cultivate it by seeking to know Jesus more and more through meditating upon his word. These are things we know. We just have to actually do it. Meditating on his word, communing with him in prayer, fellowshipping together with his people, his body, the church. There's no magic formula to this. Spend more time pursuing Christ and less time pursuing the world. It's that simple. But our flesh doesn't want us to do that. That's why it's hard. So we need to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. We need to keep looking to Christ. We need to keep praying that God would help us desire him more than our comforts in this world. And as we do that, he will give us more and more courage to stand boldly with him. So let's pray. Father, I'll be the first to admit that I'm a total coward apart from you. You know my life. You know all the opportunities I've just let pass by, all the times I've behaved cowardly, that I've been ashamed of Jesus, that I've uh, worshipped my comfort instead of Christ, Father, and I'm sure I'm not alone. So we, we run to the cross and we thank you for the forgiveness that our Lord Jesus has purchased there. We think of Peter, how he denied the Lord, how he failed to stand with the Lord, but Our Lord then went to the cross and paid for all of Peter's denials, and then he enabled Peter to stand for him. And Lord, we know that you can do the same for us. There's times when we have denied you, when we've chosen this world over you. So Lord, we come and we seek your forgiveness, and we come with the hope of knowing that not only have you forgiven us, but you've given us your spirit. You are enabling us to be more and more the the bold, people of the gospel that you want us to be. Lord, we confess we're not where we 
need to be. We thank you that we're not where we were, dead in our sin. But Lord, we know we have far to go. But we also are encouraged uh, that, that by your Spirit, you will enable us to follow Christ closer and closer, that by your grace you will finish the good work you've begun in us. And Lord, I pray for any who are here this morning who have never gone outside the camp to go to stand with Jesus, who love their society instead of Christ. They love the approval of man. They love the passing pleasures of sin instead of loving Christ. Lord, may you open their blind eyes to see that they are on their way to hell and that they are in rebellion against the God who made them. And may you draw them to your Son. May they find in him someone who is worth leaving it all behind for. And may you grant them repentance and faith that they may experience your salvation. Lord, help them to know that there are those in this church, myself, Pastor Barney, Owen, who would love to talk with them and to pray for them and to uh, introduce them to Christ. Lord, uh, may they not be afraid to come to us. We would love to, to have them. So, Lord, please accomplish your work and your, uh, your word in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.